book in the New Testament is actually a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to a church that he had planted several years before, referred to as the church at the, at the city of Philippi, which is where the book gets its name. And uh, Paul has a very close personal relationship with these people, and so it's one of those books that that is like uh, being let in on an intimate conversation between people who really know each other and care quite a bit about each other. And we come, come now to chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Actually, the first couple of verses we looked at last week, but I just wanted to read them again to set the context for where we are today. Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take this view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have heard us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies, that they might be more like his glorious body. This is God's word for God's people this morning. So last week we looked at the first two verses in this passage, and they're some of the great rhetorical heights of the whole New Testament, I think. They're one of those verses that a lot of people quote, a lot of people remember, a lot of people uh, write and put on their walls or in that place where they look for inspiration. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And even if you don't quite know what that means, it still sounds inspiring, doesn't it? A little bit. It's just, just one of those uh, sentences that, that just makes you tingle. But what happens, oh, some people. <laughs> Made Karis tingle, you can tell. She's <laughs> it's, one, it's one of those kinds of sentences. But right after that, 
Paul does a disclaimer. You know, it's kind of like those uh, pharmaceutical ads you see on TV, how they, they talk about how this, this uh, medicine is going to make your life happy, and it shows people skipping through the meadow and not sneezing or whatever it is. And then at the very end, there's this long list of, uh, of side effects. <laughs> this might result in deep depression or death. <laughs> Many people taking this have committed suicide, but, but don't worry. It, it will cure your sinusitis, so, <laughs> so it might be worth it. Uh, so we're in the disclaimer now, and that's what I want to focus on. Paul goes to these rhetorical heights, this inspirational picture of what the faith can be, and then he comes right back down to earth, and he's just intensely realistic. He says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. But then he says, but I don't yet. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I'm just pressing on. So Paul is eminently realistic. He's realistic about, he has this, this inspirational picture of what he ought to be or what he could be, and at the same time, he's honest and realistic about what he is and where he is and how his life is right here and right now. And that's reassuring to me because, you know, I, I get all excited about these inspirational uh, pictures of what the Christian life is supposed to be, and then I look at what my life actually is, and it kind of makes me wonder. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a leader in, in another church, a lay leader, and they got a chance to teach a class, and they were saying, they were teaching on some stuff that they thought they had mastered some aspects of the Christian life. They thought they had it all figured out. They'd been studying it and talking about it, and they said, just as soon as they, no sooner they taught on the topics that they started to struggle in the very areas that they had taught on. And, and they were relating this to me and said, it's so weird, I thought I had this figured out, and then I, I taught some lessons on it, and all of a sudden, my life fell apart in those areas. And I said, well, welcome to my life. That's basically what happens to me every week. Whatever I'm <laughs> teaching on becomes the thing where I find myself absolutely falling apart. But that's kind of the nature of the Christian life for a lot of us, I think, is we, we look at these ideals and we look at what we ought to be and we're inspired by, the, by them and then, unfortunately, we're confronted with the reality of what we actually are. And it's kind of embarrassing, it's kind of confusing, and it kind of makes us wonder if any of it is actually real. And that's, that, that's the way the Christian life is. But I think one of the the reassurances to me is that the Bible, if you actually read the Bible for yourself, it's an eminently realistic book. I mean, one of the problems is we memorize these verses about the power of the resurrection, but then we don't keep reading to this part where Paul says, you know, this is what I believe, but I haven't quite, I'm not there yet, but I'm still struggling. And Paul, in a lot of places, if you read him closely, he's very realistic. In Romans chapter 7, he's talking about how we need to live the resurrection with resurrection power and have victory over sin. And then Romans 7, he says, but the very thing I want to do, I don't do. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And so he talks about victory over sin, and he talks about the fact that he's still so struggling with sin that he, he's, he's about to give up. And in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about having a thorn in his flesh. He talks about begging God to deliver him from his burden, and then God says basically, no, you'll have to live with it. And so Paul 
shows us both sides. He shows us the potential, he shows us the goal, but then he is realistic about the struggle that he lived in and that he knows that we are going to live in on a daily basis. And he's not cynical about the Christian life, he's honest. He still holds on to those ideals, he still believes in those ideals, but he knows and he experiences that it's a struggle. And so, you know, as we talk about the ideals of what our life is supposed to be, what our, what our future is supposed to be, what our Christian life is supposed to be, what our family life is supposed to be, I think, you know, we all have these high ideals, but when we struggle, when we realize we're not measuring up to those, we can take solace from the picture that the, the apostle paints for us. And it's also just a warning to you. You know, when, when you do hear... I hope I'm not like this, but I know sometimes I am. When you do hear preachers talk about these impossibly high ideals of what we ought to be and how we should be as followers of Christ, you can be pretty sure the guy's an absolute hypocrite if he's making it sound easy and he's making it sound automatic because it isn't for any of us. And we get that, we get that picture from the Apostle Paul. If he was struggling, then I'm struggling and you're struggling too, so we're all in this together, all right? So Paul, Paul lives with realism, and yet his realism doesn't make him give up or become cynical, but it moves him to press on. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on. And then he goes on to say, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining what is ahead, I press on. He's not satisfied with the way he falls short. He's not satisfied or accepting of the shortcomings in his own life. That's his inspiration to continue to press. And the, and the language there is the most intense language. It's like, it's like a, a runner struggling to finish a race, going through that last, the, the last lap and refusing to quit and refusing to let go, to, to back off and just pressing on to the finish line. And that's what Paul has. So he has the realism. I haven't gotten there yet. But then he also has the resolve. I'm going to press on and I'm not going to back down until I do arrive there. So he looks at the power of the rest resurrection and he says, I'm going to keep pressing until that's real in my life. He looks at the inspiration of... of uh, of the work of Christ, and he says, I'm going to keep pressing until that's made actual in my experience. You know, he knows that in this life, none of us will ever be perfect in this life. None of us will ever be exactly like Christ in this life. None of us will ever be flawless in this life. But that doesn't mean we need to accept our flaws. That doesn't mean we need to make friends with our flaws. We need to continue to work to become everything that God wants us to be. And I think it's one of the things that, that, that it's, it, it's easy to lose touch with. It, to, to, to switch examples, I think a lot of us, you know, you look at a spectacular athlete or a spectacular artist, a, you know, say, say a, a professional dancer or something like that. You look at someone who's spectacularly successful in their professional field or or in, in leading a company or something of that nature. And all we tend to see, all we tend to look at is the highlight reels, you know, the highlight reels of the athlete's performance, the great triumphs of, 
of a business leader's career. And we don't see the struggle. We don't see the risks. We don't see the hard work. We don't see the early mornings at the gym. We don't see the problems that were overcome. We don't see the times when everybody doubted this person and yet they kept on. We just, we just see the, the highlights. But Paul here is letting us behind the screen and saying, for every one who makes progress, one of the reasons for it is their resolve to press on. Paul is, I mean, obviously, he lived 2,000 years ago, and we're actually talking about stuff that he wrote. He is one of the, probably the five most influential people in the history of the world, and, and one of the great Christians of his day. You know, he went around and planted churches all over the Roman Empire in the first century, and yet he admitted and he recognized the reality of his struggles, and he resolved that he was going to continue continue to press on. And that's the inspiration for all of us. Wherever you're at in, in your faith, wherever you're at in your circumstance, wherever you're at in your situation, it's not a place to rest. It's an opportunity to continue to press, to become one step better than you are today. You know, I heard someone put it this way. It's, Don't compare yourself to where other people are, but compare yourself to who you were yesterday and try to be one step closer tomorrow. And that's, that's the challenge of resolve and commitment that all of us are invited to as we're seeking to follow Christ. That's what following Christ will look to. Then Paul talks about one of the key things in this is being aware of who is influencing us. He recognizes that, well, his teaching and his letters are important. What's really going to to mold all of us is who we set up as the examples in our life. Paul puts it this way, verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have, have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And then he talks about those who are not doing that. So Paul is deeply concerned that, the, the, that for the people in the church in Philippi to get better, they've got to have the right examples and they've got to focus on people who are good examples. Because, you know, we can learn some things by reading, we can learn some things through principles, we can learn some things by following rules, but most of what we learn in life is learned by examples. The examples of our mothers and fathers, the examples of our friends and neighbors, our teachers, our mentors, and other people like that. That's what really shapes us at the end of the day, because more in life is caught than is taught, and so much of, of uh, the things that actually shape us are the little habits and the invisible habits that aren't really things we consciously think about, but things we pick up by, uh, by, by example. And these daily habits compound to form us into what we become. And, and this can have brilliant effects sometimes as people are influenced by people who are who are great examples and it can have catastrophic effects when we find ourselves influenced by people who are really poor examples and one thing i've discovered as as i've aged as i've observed people is we never get beyond the place where we're where we're highly influenced by the examples around us Back when I was a, a small town pastor, I was a member of the local Kiwanis Club. And Kiwanis Club, don't laugh. 
This is serious. <laughs> Kiwanis Club is what, in the small towns, that's where all the power brokers in town get together to decide what to name the new park and, and other weighty things like that. But, uh, but I met a lot of people through that. And one was this guy named Dave, uh, who, who was uh, his, his thing in town. He was, he was a, a little bit older guy, but still working. And, and his, his interest was he, was he was the local scoutmaster. About 10 years prior, his son had gone through the process and become an Eagle Scout, and he'd enjoyed it so much that he had, after his son had gone off to college and gotten on with his adult life, this guy stayed involved with the local Boy Scout troop and, and was, was a big sponsor and supporter of, of other young men who became Eagle Scouts along the way. And that was, that was the thing he talked about, the thing he was interested in. That was his ministry, as it were, in the town. But he, and he was, by trade, he was an engineer who worked for a small engineering company. You know, he wasn't rich, he wasn't poor, he was a solid middle manager, middle class kind of guy, seemed to me. And then one day he disappeared. And I asked, where, what happened to Dave? Where, where'd he go? I haven't seen him around in a while. And it turns out he had gone to prison. And I said, how did that happen? And it turned out this little private company where he was just an, an engineer had, uh, had some federal contracts, some government contracts, and they had actually ended up, the, the leadership of the company had uh, defrauded the government in, in some of these up paying paying dearly for that but you know what that experience what observing that from a distance taught me is that even adults are subject to peer pressure we worry about it for our our 12 year olds and our 15 year olds and our 17 year olds but all of us can be caught up in bad habits all of us can be are influ we all of us are influenced by the people we hang around with, and especially by the people we work with, by the people who have authority over us. And that can have great effects, or it can have catastrophic effects, depending on what direction that leads us. So the question for all of us, or the challenge for all of us, is to be self-aware about who is influencing us. To be self-aware, you are being influenced by the examples of other people, but who are those people who are influencing you? And how are they influencing you? And then, be, then have the self-awareness to choose people who are going to be the models for you, who are good models and not uh, destructive models. Because Paul says, that's how we learn. That's what shapes all of us. And so he, he exhorts the church at Philippi and he exhorts you and me to take note of those who live according to the pattern that God has given us. You know, and, the, and I guess it's, it's a two-way street. Number one, who is influencing you? And then are you becoming the kind of person who will be a powerful and positive influence on those around you? And the thing that ties all of this together is to remember our identity. Verse 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we 
eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be more like his glorious bodies. He wants the people to remember that their ultimate identity is as citizens of heaven. And let me give you some of the backstory. This is just... at the city of Philippi, and Philippi was in Macedonia, which is on the north end of the Aegean Sea, really part of Macedonia or, or Greece today. And it was, it was a province of the Roman Empire, but it had no, no influence from Rome prior to this time. But, it, but Rome, the powers that be in Rome identified it as an important city, a city where they wanted to have influence. And so they started retired military people and businessmen and, and people of that sort to Philippi and giving them houses, giving them land, giving them business opportunities so that they could settle the place and so that they could spread the influence and the ideals of the Roman Empire in this foreign city that, that Rome had, was trying to uh, colonize. And to Rome and to spread the values of the Roman Empire in this foreign city. And everybody was very conscious of those who were, who were Roman citizens and those who were not because the Roman citizens had all kinds of rights and privileges and opportunities that the non-Roman citizens wouldn't have. real in, in, the, in the church at Philippi, and certainly a church like that would have had people who identified as Roman citizens and then other people who didn't identify as Roman citizens, all kind of mashed together there. And he says, you know, what matters, our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus is your Savior, and your, power, and your hope is not in the power of Caesar or the power of the Roman Empire. Your hope is in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform your lowly bodies so that it be more like his glorious body. So your ultimate hope is not is in what Jesus has done for you. And so that was... That was the way he wanted them to identify themselves. But it also defined their mission. Because, see, Paul didn't want, and the New Testament doesn't want us to think of heaven when we die, but he wants to think of it as a dynamic that we bring down to earth. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. What did he tell us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants us to bring the of heaven and the, and the beauty of heaven down to earth. That's the mission of all the citizens of heaven right here, right now. And the hope for the citizens of Rome and Philippi was not that one day they get promoted and they go. The ideal was that they would make the city of Philippi more like Rome and that they would be able to refashion the culture and refashion the social dynamics in the city of Philippi so that it would be faithful to the ideals of mission. The church's mission as citizens of heaven is to 
bring the dynamics of heaven down to our world, to do what we can. Every act of generosity, of comfort that we can offer in Jesus' name and on his behalf is a way that we bring the dynamics of heaven to earth. And the ultimate hope... Is, is that Jesus himself is our Savior. It says, we eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that with that language there, Paul was, was, was installing what, what commentators call an anti-emperor apologetic. He was saying, you know, the true emperor, the true Caesar is our Lord Jesus Christ. And just like the people in Philippi knew that if the natives got restless and rebelled, that, that Rome would send their armies to quash the rebellion and to reestablish the rule, of, the rule of Rome in that place, the Christians can know that as things get difficult, as things get hard, we can continue to be faithful because Jesus is there for us. And one day he is going to come and it says he's going to transform the, the last step is when he transforms our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The last step of this is when he gives all those who are followers and believers in and new bodies. And that's, that's the ultimate in don't need to accept that. To be a follower of Christ is to live with hope in the face of our own failures, to live with hope in the face of the brokenness of the world around us, of the city around us, of the nation around us, and, and to believe that as we press on, we can bring the kingdom of heaven to bear on the kingdom of this earth, and God's kingdom will come, and God's will will be done here on earth, even as it is in heaven, and we can look forward to a day when we'll be invited into his presence and into a new world and a, new, and a, re, a renewed world where the Bible says there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, and he'll wipe every tear from our eyes, and the old order of things will finally pass away. That's what we're looking forward to, but until then, we press on. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make this a reality in our life, that uh, in the midst of our own self-awareness of the ways that we fall short and fail, you would help us to believe in the hope we have because of the Savior that you have sent, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to rest in him and trust in him. Pray in his holy name. Amen.